Jesus prays to be glorified. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he may, might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory <clears throat> on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They know with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that, that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those 
you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know you, and sorry, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Roy. Uh, I work as a ministry intern at Vic Park Presbyterian Church, uh, which is a pretty cool job. Um, I get to do all the fun stuff involved in ministry, uh, preaching the Bible, leading Bible studies, uh, doing outreach mission stuff, reading nerdy books. Um, but I don't have the title pastor, so that gives me a bit of plausible deniability, which I love. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's a privilege to, to work there and it's a privilege to be here this morning. Um, I've been here once or twice before, uh, so I know a few of you. I know Mikey from Trinity Theological College where we spent a couple of semesters together and it's great to be here. Uh, so it'd be good if you have your Bible open because I will be referring to the text quite a lot. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, that's cool. Uh, uh, you'll manage, or you can just pull your phone out, Google John 17, and it'll come up straight away. So, uh, we're looking at just the final few verses of John chapter 17 today, which is commonly known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And this prayer, it's the climax of the teaching which Jesus gives to his disciples in the upper room on the final night before his crucifixion. This final night together, it actually began all the way back in chapter 13, verse 1, where John says of Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In chapter 14, Jesus promises God's love to those who are obedient in chapter 15, there is the promise of much fruitfulness for those who abide in the love of the true vine. And then in chapter 16, the reassurance that the Father himself loves the disciples because they have loved Jesus and believed in him. But interspersed with all this love on the final night is the constant worrying refrain, I am going away. On this final night, more than 10 times, Jesus gives his disciples the unwelcome news of his departure. So chapter 13, verse 33, where I am going, you cannot come. Chapter 14, verse 28, I am going away. Chapter 16, verse 28, I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. And within chapter 17 itself, verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer. So this is the immediate context. 
Jesus has given his final love gift to his disciples, five long chapters of intimate and personal teaching as he prepares them for his departure. And so we come to chapter 17, which we should see as the capstone of Jesus' teaching on that final night. Jesus' final prayer to the Father before he goes to the cross, rises from the dead and ascends to heaven. And the final two verses of chapter 17, we get a wonderful summary statement of the ministry of Jesus and in particular, his teaching of the past five chapters. So if you have a look at verses from verse 25. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. There it is. Jesus' statement of mission accomplished. The word become flesh has made God known. He has made God's love known. And he pledges to continue to make God's love known in and through his people after he goes away. Now, very little of the New Testament is written directly to us. We normally have to do some level of interpretation to understand how the words of Scripture carry over and apply to us today. But this final section of chapter 17 is written directly about us. Verse 20, my prayer is not for the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So that's us here today. That's the church Catholic, the universal church that's every Christian everywhere since the time of the apostles. And Jesus goes on in verses 21 to 23 to kind of chain a bunch of purpose clauses together, explaining why he prays for us. He prays, verse 21, so that all of us would be one. He prays, middle of verse 22, so that we may be one as the Father and the Son are one. And he prays, middle of verse 23, so that we may be brought to complete unity. The prevailing theme here is oneness, unity. Look at verse 21. Jesus prays for us so that we may all be one, just as, just like, the Father and the Son are one. The Father in the Son and the Son in the Father. Jesus is praying here that all believers would be united together so closely that our unity would reflect the oneness of the triune God in heaven. Jesus is praying that even though he is going away, 
there would continue to be a physical representation, an incarnation, if you like, of God here on earth. The church is to reflect, to image the triune God himself, a multiplicity of persons united together as one bride, one church, just as the Trinity is a multiplicity of persons united together as one God. So Jesus prays for our unity, that's clear enough, but perhaps what is surprising is the how and the why. How does Jesus bring unity and to what ends does he bring unity? Because here in these verses, what leads to unity is union. Union with the Father and with the Son. Look at how verse 21 continues. May they also be in us. So Jesus is not just praying that our unity would be like the unity in God. It's not just that the church on earth would reflect the triune God in heaven, but that the church would have union with God, that we would be joined to God, bound up into the life of God. The means by which the church is united together on earth is by being bound in union to God in heaven. Now, we got a glimpse of this before in Psalm 133. So I'll read it again. Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's running down on, on the beard, down on, the, down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestow, bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So Psalm 133, it uses imagery of oil poured from above, of dew falling on Mount Zion, which suggests something good coming down from heaven. More than that, the imagery of anointing with oil and water from above are both symbols of the Holy Spirit. Just as in Psalm 133, unity comes as a gift from God above by the work of his Spirit, so too in John 17, unity in the church comes only through God pouring it out from heaven. The only way the church can expect to reflect God in unity is by being joined in to him in union by the power of the Holy Spirit. So unity in the church comes through union with God. That's the how, but what's the why? For what reason? does Jesus pray for our unity? We'll look at the end of verse 21 again. May they also be in us so that, there's the purpose statement, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
It's a missional purpose. Jesus is praying for the church on earth to be united as one, reflecting the unity of God in heaven so that the world would believe in Jesus. Jesus' purpose is a revelatory purpose. He is seeking to ensure that after he goes away, the church would be a mighty testimony in the world to him. That there would continue to be, in a sense, an incarnation of God in the world to testify to the love of God for the world. Just like Jesus came into the world as a tangible revelation of God, revealing his glory, so now the church will shine forth as a tangible revelation of Jesus and the Father who sent him. The purpose of the church reflecting God in the world is to reveal Jesus to the world. And so now Jesus has gone to heaven. The world looks to the church to see Jesus. It's a bit like how a wife can be said to represent her husband. If you see Tina, on some level, you are seeing her husband, Gary. What you say to Tina makes its way back to Gary. Because Gary and Tina are bound together as one. How you treat Tina is how you treat Gary. And so too, the church, the bride of Christ, represents Christ. And we get basically the same logic in verses 22 to 23. So have a look at your Bibles, verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. So there it is again, an analogous connection between the unity of the church and the unity of God. We are one as God is one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me. And that's union again, right? The church in the Son and the Son in the Father. Continuing on, so that, so that they may be brought to complete unity. In verses 22 to 23, Jesus makes the same point as he made in verse 21. The church will be united just like God is united by being joined in union to Christ. And then the result, the middle of verse 23. Then the world will know that you sent me. The unity of the church a unity which is so deep it mirrors the oneness of the essence of the Trinity, a unity which is only possible because it is poured out from heaven, binding the church in union with God. This unity will be a revelation on earth of the Father and of the Son. After Jesus goes away to heaven, the church will be a powerful, tangible revelation of God here on earth. That's the glory he says he's given us in verse 22. It is the glory which reveals God to the world. It is the glory of the church united together, bound in union with God, reflecting God, imaging God, 
as a kind of incarnation of God in the world, even as the incarnation himself. Jesus Christ is about to return to be with his Father in heaven. Okay, so the logic of verses 22 to 23, it's pretty much the same as that of verse 21. But in verse 23, there is one extra element introduced. So have a look at the end of verse 23 and see if you can pick it. Then the world will know that you sent me, and here's the extra element, and have loved them even as you have loved me. So the church reflecting the unity of God on earth will reveal God to the world, but it will also reveal that the Father loves the church with the very same love that he loves the Son. But what is this love between the Father and the Son? Look at the end of verse 24. It is the love between them since before the creation of the world. The extra element here is the revelation to the world that the love of the Father for the church is of the same substance as the love of the Father for the Son. By being joined in union to the Son by the Spirit, the church is loved by God with the very same love which existed between the Father and the Son before the world began. Now, I have thought long and hard about a way to illustrate this, and I failed. This truth utterly transcends worldly comparisons. The fact is, what this passage teaches us is that the love that existed in the triune God in eternity past, the infinite, lavish, abundant love of God, the love which is so copious that it burst forth out of the infinite God, inspiring him to create the entire cosmos out of his pure joy and good pleasure and full to the brimness. This is the very same love which has been set upon us. It has been set upon us in the church who, verse 24, the Father has given the Son and who the Son desires to be with him where he is as his chosen people, his special possession, his spotless beloved bride. And this is a brain-breaking truth. If you can get a hold of this truth, it will turn your world upside down, but you can only get hold of it by faith, and even then just a little piece at a time. Because our experience of life in this world is just so far removed from the truth of God's cosmic love for us, isn't it? Many of us experience constant, relentless hurt and worry and insecurity. We might be pretty functional. We might be holding it together. We might even, at times, feel blessed. But the fact remains, 
that for most of us, our lives are characterized by constant trouble, uncertainty, and pain. So I, I mentioned before that I work as an intern at Vic Park Presbyterian. And recently my boss, the pastor, he encouraged me to systematically pray through all the members of our church on a regular basis. And in doing so, I have been struck by the number of our people who I know are afflicted in some way, who are sick or depressed or who have a difficult family life or other overwhelming, long-standing, painful problems. And I am sure that this church is no different from mine. And I find myself wondering about God's love for us. I find myself doubting. How can it be true that he loves us when he has us bear such misery and affliction, such seemingly pointless pain, the pain of sick children, of women with cancer, of men who struggle to see a reason to go on living. The pain of hope dashed against the rock of reality, of grief and of fear and of constant, grating, unrelenting woe which returns to us day after day, month after month, year after year. How can there be a good, loving God in charge of our sad and broken lives? If he loves us, why won't he help us? And I can't answer that question for you today. I can't pretend to understand the mind of God. I can't see how he's going to make all this worth it. But we have his promises that he will. And here we have the words of Jesus which reveal to us the depths of his great love for us. Jesus says that his love is set upon us immovably, immutably, the love which binds the triune God together in his very being is the self-same love which is set upon us in the church. Jesus loves us so deeply that he wants us to be with him where he is. Jesus' heart desire is to be joined to us. His desire is for there to be no barrier between him and his bride. Again, this truth transcends worldly comparisons. But I'm going to give you an illustration here, which is probably too personal, but it works, I think. This is your reward for staying awake up to this point. It's a little bit like a number of years ago, I met a girl who I became interested in. Eventually, I asked her out and we started dating. Things were going really well and I started to like her more and more to the point that she became the only girl that I ever seriously considered I might like to marry one day. 
As I got to know her better, I became more and more aware of her imperfections and her shortcomings. But those things, they didn't matter to me. They were far outweighed by my growing affection towards her. And I can recall thinking to myself at the time, if I could, I would move in and live inside of this girl's head. I don't want any barrier between us. I want to take up residence there and never move out. Now, there's no ring on my finger, so obviously she didn't feel the same and there was no happy ending. But that desire I felt to be close to her, to be bound in union to her, is some small flickering shadow of the desire Jesus proclaims here that he has towards his church. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and see my glory. End of verse 26, I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Here we see the heart of Jesus for his bride. Here we see the desire of Jesus to be close to us. Jesus wants to live inside our heads and our hearts with no barrier between him and us. Despite all our imperfections and shortcomings, despite all our sin, Jesus has his heart steadfastly set upon us. He wants to be with us in deepest intimacy and connection. In some sense, what we have here in the final verses of John 17 is the last will and testament of Jesus Christ and his final request to his father before his crucifixion is that his bride, the church, would be bound to him, joined to him, made one with him in heaven. And unlike my sad story of unrequited love, this love of God set upon the church is irresistible and immovable. Those whom the Father gives the Son will come to him. The happy ending is guaranteed. We will be with him where he is, filled with his spirit, bound to the Son in eternal love and worship forever. The way this cashes out in the life of the church now is in our unity with one another. By pouring out his spirit on us from above, we are bound up into the love of God himself. We are united together as one, just as God is one. And so we image and reflect God to the world. Now the word become flesh has gone to heaven to be with his father, but by the spirit we are already joined to, in union to him as his bride. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that the wife is the glory of the husband. So the challenge for us is to display that glory to the world. And so the church should be a place characterised by unique glory, 
a brightness, a heaviness, a greatness. It should be a place where we are bound together in unity, truly reflecting the character and heart of God. It should be a place which outsiders look at and see the goodness and love of God played out in big and little ways amongst his people. It should be a place full of people who look like Jesus, people with lives characterised by service and by suffering, people bent low under the weight of the cross they bear, people who for the joy set before them fix their eyes on Calvary and live their lives one painful day at a time, trusting in the promises and love of God. People who bear the image of God uniquely, who live lives of weight and of substance, not of frivolousness or flippancy. People who take one another seriously, not perpetually solemn, there must of course be merriment and joy, but with an awareness of the weight of the glory of the other. So, practically speaking, what might that look like? It might look like simple kindness towards visitors and new people. It might look like sacrificial giving to the poor and to the church. It might look like a heavenward focus and perspective. It might look like grief and affliction shared and carried together. It might look like lives broken and poured out as living sacrifices. And more than anything, it might look like a unified focus on the mission of Jesus. If we are to mirror and image the triune God who came in Jesus to seek and save the lost, then despite our wounds, despite the burden of our cross, despite the weight of glory placed upon us, which at times seems like too much to bear, we will be concerned for our neighbour we will seek to extend the invitation to our friends and families to come to know God through the gospel held out by the church for together the spirit and the bride say come. Together the spirit and the bride hold out the word preached, the word prayed and the word presented in the sacraments in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.